What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From room 615 at the Time Hotel... New York City, New York. This is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, exhausted, in need of a nap, a nap I will not be taking on this fine Wednesday afternoon, which is when I am Recording this episode, my sketch comedy troupe, The State, is in New York City for three shows. Tonight is our third and final show, and it's just exhausting. I'm just not a young man anymore. Tomorrow morning, we have to get up early, get on a train, go to Boston to do another show tomorrow night. Then I go to Winnipeg, Canada for two nights. It'll just lay you out, brother. Brother? It'll just lay you out as I'm speaking to you right now. I am coming from an anniversary lunch, my wife and I celebrating 25 years of betrothal. My son flew up from Savannah this morning, met us for lunch along with a bunch of people from the state. He's going to come to the show tonight, and that will be the first time and possibly last time he ever sees the state perform Live, So that's, that's nice. I'm excited to have him here in this big city where everything is up to date. Been walking around New York City the past few days. Everything's up to date. They got buildings 12 stories tall here in New York City. And I don't know how it compares to Kansas City of 1925 or thereabouts, but I got to believe it's close to snuff. When you start comparing cities, New York 2023 versus Kansas City 1925, where would you rather be? Among the hoi polloi here in New York City or going out and dancing with the flappers of the 20s? I know where my sympathies lie with Clyde Griffiths, who's been 
out and about and meeting ladies and cutting rugs. And so the last thing that happened with Clyde Griffiths is, uh, you know, he's out with, what's her face, Hortense, and he's all excited. And she's resolved, in her mind at least, to basically just use him for the coin in his pocket. You know, he's a fool. He thinks she likes him. She doesn't. She doesn't dislike him, but she's not immune from the offer of a good steak and chop at Frizzell's, even if the money comes from the pocket of a fella she considers a touch green, still wet behind the ears, this kid. So she's going to teach him a thing or two, she is, about what it means to fall too hard for a gal who does not return those feelings. So let's pick it up. Shall we not here with chapter 13 in American Tragedy? For a period of four months at least, this was exactly the way it worked out, meaning she would go out with him when she didn't have basically anything better to do. After meeting her in this fashion, he was devoting not an inconsiderable portion of his free time to attempting to interest her to the point where she would take as much interest in him as she appeared to take in others. At the same time, he could not tell whether she could be made to entertain a singular affection for anyone, nor could he believe that there was only an innocent camaraderie involved in all this. Yet she was so enticing that he was deliriously moved by the thought that if his worst suspicions were true, she might ultimately favor him. Well, good luck with that, Clyde. I, I suspect that's not going to be the case. So captivated was he by this savor of sensuality and varietism that was about her, the stigmata of desire manifest in her gestures, moods, voice, the way she dressed, that he could not think of relinquishing her. Think about the, the choice of that word, the stigmata of desire manifest in her gestures, moods, voice. The stigmata. Why? Why that word of all others? The stigmata of desire. The wound. The wound of desire the, that was placed upon him by a higher power than himself. I'm just trying to understand this phrase, the stigmata of desire. It's, a, it's almost a violent image, isn't it? Well, it is. And maybe his feelings for her border on the supernatural and the violent. I don't know. Rather, he foolishly ran after her. And seeing this, she put him off. At times evaded him compelled him to content himself with little more than the crumbs of her company, while at the same time favoring him with descriptions or pictures of other activities and contacts which made him feel as though he could no longer endure to merely trail her in this fashion. It was then he would announce to himself in anger that he was not going to see her any more. She was no good to him, really. But on seeing her again, a cold indifference in everything she said and did, his courage failed him, and he could not think of severing the tie. I had a gal like that in my life once. I mean, I was just head over heels for her. I don't, I don't think she disliked me, and, but, you know, the feelings, the intensity 
of feelings, the stigmata of desire, was not reciprocated, and eventually she broke up with me. And that was very devastating. And now, in addition to feeling tired, I feel heartbroken. So thanks for that, Theodore Dreiser. She was not at all backward at the same time in speaking of things that she needed or would like to have. Little things at first, a new powder puff, a lipstick, a box of powder, or a bottle of perfume. Later, and without having yielded anything more to Clyde than a few elusive and evasive endearments, intimate and languorous reclining in his arms, which promised much, but always came to nothing, she made so bold as to indicate to him at different times and in different ways, purses, blouses, slippers, stockings, a hat, which she would like to buy if only she had the money, and he, in order to hold her favor and properly ingratiate himself, proceeded to buy them, though at times, and because of some other developments in connection with his family, it pressed him hard to do so. And yet, as he was beginning to see toward the end of the fourth month, he was apparently little farther advanced in her favor than he had been in the beginning. In short, he was conducting a feverish and almost painful pursuit without any definite promise of reward. Well, what is the nature of the reward he seeks ultimately? Are we to believe that he is merely interested in sexual rewards, some sort of bedding, some sort of physical intimacy with him? Or, and I suspect this is actually the case though, perhaps Clyde himself would have a hard time articulating, is it more that he wants her favor? that he wants the glint in her eye to turn towards him. He wants more than anything the choice of him when she could choose all others. It isn't so much the physical intimacy that he craves, although certainly that is part of it. It is, more than anything else, the desire to be loved and to be loved for himself, even though he knows when he empties his wallet for her favor, he is buying nothing. He knows that, but he is incapable of doing anything otherwise, because to cut off the purse strings now would be to cut her out of his life. Now, you and I know that would, in, in fact, be the best thing to do for him, because she does not care for him in that way, but, or really in any way, but he, you know, he doesn't have the stoutness of heart and the courage and the gumption to cut her out of his life. He does not believe in himself enough to entertain the notion that he might find somebody who would love him for him. In the meantime, insofar as his home ties went, the irritations and the depressions, which were almost inextricably involved with membership in the Griffiths family, were not different from what they had ever been. For following the disappearance of Esta, there had settled a period of dejection, which still endured. Only insofar as Clyde was concerned, it was complicated with a mystery which was tantalizing and something more, irritating, 
For when it came to anything which related to sex in the Griffiths family, no parents could possibly have been more squeamish. And yes, I use the British pronunciation pronunciation of been for bin just because I felt like it. It was just a quirk of the moment. Could possibly have been more squeamish. And especially did this apply to the mystery which had now surrounded Esther for some time. Okay, we're getting back to Esther. She had gone. She had not returned. And so far as Clyde and the others knew, no word of any kind had been received from her. However, Clyde had noted that after the first few weeks of her absence, during which time both his mother and father had been most intensely wrought up and troubled, worrying greatly as to her whereabouts and why she did not write. Suddenly, they had ceased their worries and had become very much more resigned, at least not so tortured by a situation that previously had seemed to offer no hope whatsoever. He could not explain it. It was quite noticeable, and yet nothing was said. And then one day a little later... (laughs) I don't know why I'm cracking myself up a little bit. It was just my own performance was making me laugh. And then one day a little later, Clyde had occasion to note that his mother was in communication with someone by mail. Something rare for her, for so few were her social or business connections that she rarely received or wrote a letter. So apparently, Clyde's mama bear is in touch with Hester, also known as Esther, and that her worries concerning her safety have ceased. One day, however, very shortly after he had connected himself with the Green Davidson, the hotel, as you recall, he had come in rather earlier than usual in the afternoon and found his mother bending over a letter which, evidently, had just arrived and which appeared to interest her greatly. Also, it seemed to be connected with something which required concealment, for on seeing him, she stopped reading at once and, flustered and apparently nervous, arose and put the letter away without commenting in any way upon what she had been doing. But Clyde, for some reason, intuition perhaps, had the thought that it might be from Esther. He was not sure, and he was too far away to detect the character of the handwriting. But whatever it was, his mother said nothing afterwards concerning it. She looked as though she did not want him to inquire, and so reserved were their relations that he would not have thought of inquiring. He merely wondered, and then dismissed it partially, but not entirely, from his mind. Well, so there is some secret communique, some back-channel messaging going on between Hester, also known as Esther, and the mother whose name escapes me at the moment. Some letter writing, some messages, some back and forth, some tete-a-tete. What is the nature of these messages? What are we to believe is going on in the life of their daughter with her no-good James Franco-esque boyfriend? The hell is happening with that girl? And why are the parents suddenly so unconcerned with her safety and well-being. I don't know. Let's take a break. 
We'll contemplate that, and we will return in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Back in Obscure, your humble, soporific host struggling to get through this episode for all of you marvelous, wonderful people, all of you who have entrusted me to read you works of classic literature out loud and comment on them as I go. It is for you that I persevere despite my fatigue. Does it make me a hero? It does. Picking the story back up with Clyde, who is finding himself on the edges of a mystery concerning his sister Hester, also known as Esther. A month or five weeks after this, and just about the time that he was becoming comparatively well-schooled in his work at the Green Davidson, and was beginning to interest himself in Hortense Briggs, his mother came to him one afternoon with a very peculiar proposition for her. Without explaining what it was for, or indicating directly that now she felt that he might be in a better position to help her, she called him into the mission hall when he came in from work, and looking at him rather fixedly and nervously for her, said, You wouldn't know, Clyde, would you, how I could raise a hundred dollars right away. Well, well, well. The woman of the spirit, married to the man of the cloth, is now coming to her eldest son with material needs of her own. Now, clearly, this is related to Hester, also known as Esther. What is this $100 to pay for? Let's read on and hopefully find out. Clyde was so astonished that he could scarcely believe his ears. For only a few weeks before, the mere mention of any sum above four or five dollars in connection with him 
would have been preposterous. His mother knew that, yet here she was asking him and apparently assuming that he might be able to assist her in this way, and rightly, for both his clothes and his general air had indicated a period of better days for him. At the same time, his first thought was, of course, that she had observed his clothes and goings-on and was convinced that he was deceiving her about the amount he earned. And in part, this was true. Only so changed was Clyde's manner of late that his mother had been compelled to take a very different attitude toward him and was beginning to be not a little dubious as to her further control over him. Well, yes, of course, this is the thing that parents, you know, have to come to terms with as their children get older. Eventually, what's going to happen is, in the case of Clyde or in the case of Hester, their, their kids are going to make decisions that do not involve them, or if they do, only in, in the most tangential sense. Hester, and also known as Esther, leaving home, yes, that was a decision that was directly affected by them, but really was more about her, Clyde, getting this job at the Green Davidson and concealing the amount of money he actually makes, it was really more about him, but does tangentially involve his shame towards them. And parents must come to terms with these progressions in their children's lives and eventually learn to make peace with them. And it sounds like that is sort of what's happening with Mama Griffiths. Recently, or since he had secured this latest place, for some reason, he had seemed to her to have grown wiser, more assured, less dubious of himself, inclined to go his own way and keep his own counsel. And while this had troubled her not a little in one sense, it rather pleased her in another. For to see Clyde, who had always seemed because of his sensitiveness and unrest, so much of a problem to her, developing in this very interesting way was something, though at times, and in view of his very recent finery, she had been wondering and troubled as to the nature of the company he might be keeping. That's a very long sentence. It goes from for to see Clyde all the way through the nature of the company he might be keeping. That sentence takes five lines, and the sentence above takes five lines. So that was some complicated compound sentences. Man, oh man, didn't know we were going to get all that kind of fancy writing. You know, here I am denigrating the American writers and saying, oh, you know, the writing's simpler, it's clearer, it's cleaner, and here you go with a five-line sentence. Who says Americans are fools and knaves? Not I. Not when they can write with that length. But since his hours were so long and so absorbing, and whatever money he made appeared to be going into clothes, she felt that she had no real reason to complain. Her one other thought was that perhaps he was beginning to act a little selfish, to think too much of his own comfort, and yet, in the face of his long deprivations, she could not very well begrudge him any temporary pleasure, either interesting. Is that not an interesting little character note about the mother? 
she recognizes that she has put him in penury and that all these years of dragging him around from mission to mission to mission in his tatty clothes and his warbly singing voice may have left him feeling a little diminished, a little less than. And so now that he has secured a little coin in his pocket, she need not begrudge his finery and his foppish ways. And yes, he probably does seem a bit wiser, a bit more mature, now that he's seen a touch of the world and he's hung out with those coarse boys on the bellhop bench. Now that they've told him a thing or two about the way the world works, now that he has manipulated situations in exchange for a slightly larger tip, now that he has bound down the stairs of the Green Davidson to the haberdashers with all the speed that he could muster to secure garters for some out-of-town guest in the hopes of receiving a shiny two-bit coin? Yes! He has matured. Yes, he has grown wiser. Yes, he has seen more of the ways of the world, particularly now that he is in the thrall of Hortense, who is demanding new coin from him at every turn. And here comes his mother, hand outstretched, looking for a hundred smackaroos. Is she out of her goddamn mind? And what does she need it for? We are no closer to understanding the answer to that question than we were when she first asked. Clyde, not being sure of her real attitude, merely looked at her and exclaimed, why, where would I get a hundred dollars, ma? He had visions of his newfound source of wealth being dissipated by such unheard of and inexplicable demands as this, and distress and distrust at once showed on his countenance. Well, I didn't expect that you could get it all for me, Mrs. Griffith suggested tactfully. I have a plan to raise the most of it, I think, but I did want you to help me try to think how I would raise the rest. I didn't want to go to your father with this if I could help it, and you're getting old enough now to be of some help. She looked at Clyde approvingly and interestedly enough. Your father is such a poor hand at business, she went on, and he gets so worried at times. She passed a large and weary hand over her face, and Clyde was moved by her predicament, whatever it was. At the same time, apart from whether he was willing to part with so much or not, or had it to give, he was decidedly curious about all this was for. A hundred dollars. Gee whiz! After a moment or two, is, how much is a, a $100 in 1925? Let's just crank up the research machine. These kinds of questions always interest me, and they never quite feel precise because things don't, I'm just, I got the old research machine. These things don't exactly translate, but we get a rough idea. $100 in 1925 would be worth, let's see. A little bit more than I would have thought. I would have guessed about $1,000, but apparently it's worth about $1,700, $1,800. So, quite a bite of money. I mean, so what, Clyde's what, 15, 16, 17 years old? If my mother had come to me when I was 16 or 17 years old and said, hey, do you have $1,700 I could have? I would have said, again, you're out of your goddamn mind. Although, now that I think of it, in fact, that is what my mother did when, 
when I was probably not even 16 or 17, probably 15, 14, whatever it was, my mother and her partner came to me and my brother and said, hey, we want to open a store. Can we borrow some money from you? And in fact, I did have money because my father had died and there was some life insurance money. And I said, well, what, what, you know, we want to open a store. And I said, well, what if the store fails? How am I going to get my money back? And, and that was apparently an offensive question because that ended the conversation. And they ended up taking the money anyway. And I was never repaid when the store failed. So, c'est la vie. All right. So he said $100. Gee whiz. After a moment or two, his mother added, I'll tell you what I've been thinking. I must have $100, but I can't tell you for what now. No, you nor anyone, and you mustn't ask me. There's an old gold watch of your father's in my desk and a solid gold ring and pin of mine. Those things ought to be worth $25 at least if they were sold or pawned. Then there is that set of solid silver knives and forks and that silver platter and pitcher in there. Clyde knew the keepsakes well. That platter alone is worth $25. I believe they ought to bring at least 20 or 25 together. I was thinking, if I could get you to go to some good pawn shop with them down near where you work, and then if you would let me have five more a week for a while, Clyde's countenance fell. I could get a friend of mine, Mr. Murch, who comes here, you know, to advance me enough to make up the hundred, and then I could pay him back out of what you pay me. I have about ten dollars myself. She looked at Clyde as much as to say, Now surely you won't desert me in my hour of trouble. And Clyde relaxed, in spite of the fact that he had been counting upon using quite all that he earned for himself. In fact, he agreed to take the trinkets to the pawn shop and to advance her five more for the time being until the difference between whatever the trinkets brought and $100 was made up. And yet in spite of himself, he could not help resenting this extra strain, for it had only been a very short time that he had been earning so much, and here was his mother demanding more and more as he saw it. Ten dollars a week now. Always something wrong, thought Clyde. Always something needed. And with no assurance, that there would not be more such demands later. Well, I think it's safe to say there will be more such demands later, Clyde, because when one gets a little money in one's pocket, almost assuredly, the demands come with it. Somebody's hand is always outstretched, looking for a little taste. They want to just put their beak in the water, get a little taste for themselves, as frustrating as that may be. He took the trinkets, carried them to the most presentable pawn shop he could find, and being offered $45 for the lot, took it. This with his mother's 10 would make 55, and with 45 she could borrow from Mr. Murch would make 100. Only now, as he saw, it would mean that for nine weeks he would have to give her $10 instead of five, and that in view of his present aspirations to dress, live, and enjoy himself in a way entirely different from what he previously considered necessary, was by no means a pleasure to contemplate. Nevertheless, he decided to do it. After all, he owed his mother something. She had made many sacrifices for him and the others in days past, 
and he could not afford to be too selfish. It was not decent. But the most enduring thought that now came to him was that if his mother and father were going to look to him for financial aid, they should be willing to show him more consideration than had previously been shown him. For one thing, he ought to be allowed to come and go with more freedom in so far as his night hours were concerned. And at the same time, he was clothing himself and eating his meals at the hotel, and that was no small item as he saw it. However, there was another problem that had soon arisen, and it was this. Not so long after the matter of the hundred dollars, he encountered his mother in Montrose Street, one of the poorest streets, streets which ran north from Bickle, and which consisted entirely of two unbroken lines of wooden houses and two-story flats and many unfurnished apartments. Even the Griffiths, poor as they were, would have felt themselves demeaned by the thought of having to dwell in such a street. His mother was coming down the front steps of one of the less tatterdemalion houses of this row. What a fantastic word I've never before encountered, tatterdemalion. By golly, every once in a while you see a, a, a word in this language of ours you've never seen before, and it gives you a thrill right up the old spine, does it not? Everything's tingling, tatterdemalion. Well, I've got to look it up. I mean, I, I have a sense of what it means, run down, haggard, shabby. But, you know, I just want to, I want to dawdle on this word for a, for a moment. Tatterdemalion. A person in tattered clothing, a shabby person, ragged, unkempt, or dilapidated. What is the origin? The exact origin of tatterdemalion is uncertain, but it's probably connected to either the noun tatter or the adjective tattered. We do know that tatterdemalion has been used in print since the 1600s, and yet never before have I encountered it. So exciting. So his mother's coming down the steps of one of these tattered Demelian houses, a lower front window of which carried a very conspicuous card which read, Furnished Rooms. And then, without turning or seeing Clyde across the street, she proceeded to another house a few doors away, which also carried a Furnished Rooms card and, after surveying the exterior interestedly, mounted the steps and rang the bell. Well, we'll conclude there. It looks like perhaps she is house shopping for her daughter. Maybe she is looking to help James Franco and Hester, also known as Esta, secure some lodging for themselves. Maybe they're sleeping at the bus station. I don't know. We do know that they're not at the Green Davidson in those well-appointed rooms with the tufted headboards and the real enamel commodes. Nothing going on at the Green Davidson for somebody in the penury of Hester, also known as Esther. I mean, we don't know her financial condition, but we do know that she has run off with a no-good actor type, and those types don't make a lot of money, at least if my personal experience is any indication. You know, dumb actors, they don't, know, they don't even know what to do with money when they have it. They spend it all on tie sticks and patent leather shoes, you know, and scarves and and foofery and finery, instead of putting it in certificates of deposit and gold bullion like they should. Idiots, one and all. All right, let's leave it there. I have used up my nap time. 
I got rehearsal in a little while. I should rest my voice until showtime. So we will conclude and we will pick it up again on another Tatterdemalion episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more Obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.